My name is Megan Parton. I'm the Discipleship Coordinator at King's Cross Church, and you're listening to our podcast in Charleston, South Carolina. We are working our way through the entire Bible during 2023 in a sermon series called The Story. For more information about our church or to find resources related to the story, visit kingscross.org. I already introduced myself, but uh, I just will again for the sake of those who are listening on the podcast. Um, I'm Chip. Uh, if you haven't met me, I'd love to meet you. I'd uh, love for you to hang around a little bit and say hello maybe after the service. Um, I will turn 49 years old this fall. Um, comes on you quick, so um, young people. But when I was born, uh, roughly 90% of Americans self-identified as Christian. Uh, today, that number is about 64%. And depending on which data set you want to look at, and there are several of them out there, by the time the newborns in our nursery are my age, that number is going to be somewhere between 35 and 55%. The denomination that we cooperate with uh, for international missions and domestic church planning, the Southern Baptist Convention, lost 500,000 members last year. It's the steepest decline in a century. Closer to home, if you look at just our zip code, 29492, which as of today is still largely rural, um, just in our zip code, there are about 7,000 people right now this morning who will not attend a church, synagogue, or mosque of any kind for any religion whatsoever. And if you were to grab the zip codes that adjoin ours, so not the whole tri-county area, like just the zip codes that touch 29492, that number is closer to about 115,000. People who aren't in any church, mosque, synagogue of any kind for any religion. It would seem, if you were to look at the history of the church in America, that there is always some movement just around the corner that promises a great renewal of faith. You can think back through our history of revivalism movements at the beginning of the 20th century or later a leveraging of technology that led to things like televangelists or you might think about the West Coast Jesus movement or even seeker-sensitive churches that got filled with boomers in mega churches or closer to our time, the Young Restless Reform movement of the turn of the 21st century. And there was good in all of those things, but there is no end of books and podcasts and conferences and sermons that promise to hold the secret of renewal. Renewal for individual Christians, renewal for individual local churches, for entire denominations. Some would even say if we will just do these things that we can renew Christendom around the world. And yet, the big picture data paints a picture of not renewal, but decline. Here's a question. What if, whether you're talking about individuals or churches, the key to renewal lay not in the world and its latest techniques, 
but in God's word and its ancient truths. If the key to renewal for you and I as individuals, for us as a church, for a nation, for a world, has actually been right here in God's word the whole time. It's what we find in the book of Ezra. Ezra is a book that comes after 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. We saw in those books over the last couple of weeks kind of the history of what it was that had been happening. Israel had been divided into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom had been conquered and assimilated by Assyria. The southern kingdom had been conquered by Babylon in 586 B.C., Much of its population had been exiled. Its capital city, Jerusalem, had had its walls and its temple torn down. About 50 years after that, Persia had conquered Babylon, or it actually kind of subsumed Babylon. Babylon kind of crumbled from the inside, if you're a history buff. But but Persia takes over Babylon. And then in 539 B.C., the Persian king Cyrus issued a decree that all of those exiles could return home and begin worshiping again in the style that they did before Babylon had exiled them. Now, if you are familiar somewhat with your Bible, that decree, 539 B.C., comes at about loosely the time that Daniel dies. If you know Daniel of Daniel in the lion's den. This is historically verified information. In 1829, there was an excavation done of ancient Babylon by a guy named Hormuz Rassam, and he found what is now known as the Cyrus Cylinder that contained uh, a historical record of this decree of King Cyrus. You can find it in the British Museum because, of course, you can. Um, That's where a lot of stuff winds up, but this is happening Cyrus the Great issues this decree in 539. And then what happens is Ezra chapter 1 and 2 record the first wave of exiles that come back. Ezra 3 describes the rebuilding of the altar and the laying of the foundations of the temple. In chapter 4, opposition arises and the work on the temple gets put on hold for about 15 years. In Ezra chapter 5, the prophets Haggai and Zechariah stir the people back up to the work. And the governor sends a letter to the new Persian king, a guy named Darius, to confirm that it's okay for them to rebuild. They they didn't want to start and stop all the time. In chapter 6, Darius sends a letter back and he says, yes, it's okay. And the temple is completed, dedicated, and the people celebrate Passover again. That's the first six chapters of Ezra. There's a 50-year break in between chapter 6 and 7. If you're familiar with the book of Esther, Esther occurs kind of during that 50-year break. Esther is a woman who lives in Persia, and she becomes the queen, the Persian king Xerxes. So you have this 50-year break, and then chapter 7 begins as Xerxes' successor, a guy named Artaxerxes, he sends Ezra the priest to Jerusalem. Chapter 8 tells us about the people who went with him. And chapter 9 talks about the primary spiritual problem that he finds when he gets there. Chapter 10 concludes the book as the first steps towards addressing that problem are unveiled. If you just turn one page in your Bible, you'd find the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah is a contemporary of Ezra. They're in Jerusalem at the same time. Nehemiah rebuilds the walls around the city as Ezra had overseen the rebuilding, and the reinstitution of the temple. But we spent a whole bunch of time in Nehemiah last year, so we're just going to focus on 
Ezra um, as we continue our journey through the story together. What you have in Ezra is a story of renewal. It's a renewal of a city as the exiles return to it. It's a renewal of the temple as sacrifices and worship are restored in it. And most importantly, it's a renewal of the people of God and their commitment to follow him, to obey his laws, and to live like the people of God again. And in the story of their renewal, we find three truths about how God still brings renewal to people, to movements, to churches, to nations today. The first one is this, that renewal comes from God's hand. Comes from God's hand. This is how the book begins, Ezra 1.1. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put in writing. And then this is the proclamation. Verse 2. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, that's the covenant name of God, Yahweh, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may his God be with him, and let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judah, and rebuild the house of the Lord, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods and with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Then rose up the heads of the fathers, houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. So right at the beginning, we are told that the events that are going to follow in this book happen because God moved. He stirred up the spirit of the Persian king Cyrus. Later in chapter 7, we're going to see he does the same thing in the heart of Artaxerxes. He also stirs up the spirit of some of the people in Israel. Chapter 5, the building project had restarted and it was able to continue because Ezra 5.5 says that the eye of God was on the elders of the Jews. Later, after the temple is completed and dedicated, Ezra 6.22 says they kept the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days with joy, for the Lord had made them joyful and had turned the heart of the king of Assyria to them, so that he aided them in the work of the house of God, the God of Israel. Renewal comes from God's hand. comes from God's hand moving in the hearts and the minds of people to shape history according to His divine will. This is going to be true in the second half of the book as well. In chapter 7, God's hand is on Ezra. In chapter 8, God's hand is on those who are returning to Jerusalem. And Ezra is going to say to the king that God's hand is on all those who seek Him. How does renewal come to a city, to a temple, to a people? It comes from God's hand. I wonder if you believe that. 
Or if you're a little more of the, um, if it's to be, it's up to me crowd. And surely God uses people. God works through people. He calls his people to participate in his mission to reconcile, redeem, and restore all things to himself in Christ. But he does so as a means of exercising his sovereignty. We are the clay, not the potter. We're the song, not the singer. And so it is good that we have a burden. It is good if you have a burden to see gospel preaching churches flourishing and growing, to see lost people saved or to see saved people equipped. It is good if you have a burden to see brokenness healed and addictions overcome and relationships thrive. Christians should long for justice to roll down like the waters, for marriage to be honored by all, for those who are in authority to rule in a way that allows us to live peaceful and quiet lives. It's important for the people of God to participate in and to pray for public and private businesses, governmental and academic spheres, medical and scientific research, the arts and recreation. Though the call of God on his people is nothing less than to seek the inbreaking of the kingdom of God in every sphere of human existence. This is who we are called to be. If you have a burden for renewal in whatever sphere of your life you feel heavy, that is a good, God-given bent of your heart and a right understanding of renewal begins with the humble recognition that it comes from God's hand first. Here's one way you'll know if you believe that. Take a look at your prayer life. I told you Ezra 22. Ezra tells the Persian king, he says, don't bother sending a protection detail with us, which is what the king had offered to do. He said, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. I don't need your military detail to protect me. My God will protect me. You know what he did in verse 21 before he told that to the king? He fasted and prayed for God's protection. It's an unshakable confidence in the sovereign hand of God and an unyielding commitment to pray for it to move. That's the kind of church that I pray we are increasingly becoming. That's the type of man, the type of husband and father and pastor and leader that I increasingly want to become. To be filled with the confidence and peace that comes from belief in God's sovereignty over all things and emptied of all pride and hubris, knowing that if renewal is going to come to our lives or to our city or to our church, that it comes from God's hand first, not from mine or from ours. Renewal comes, God is the initiating agent. Comes from God's hand. Second, the second truth we see about how God brings renewal in the book of Ezra is that it comes from God's word. Renewal comes from God's hand moving in the events of human history. It comes from God's word. 
Chapter 7, Ezra goes up to Jerusalem. Verse 6 says, Ezra went up from Babylonia. He was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given to the king, given, and the king granted him all that he asked, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. Verse 10 adds that Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel. Chapter 7 contains a letter written by the Persian king Artaxerxes in which the Persian king says, Ezra is being sent by the king according to the law of your God. He funds the purchase of the sacrifices Ezra's going to need to worship God. He commands all those who Ezra encounters to help accomplish, quote, whatever is decreed by the God of heaven. He charges Ezra to teach the laws of your God to those who do not know them. And he decrees that judgment will be strictly executed on all those who disobey the law of God. This is a pagan, non-Jewish king of Persia. Sending, funding, empowering, protecting, and vouching for Ezra. Whose return to Jerusalem represents nothing less than the return of the law of God to the city of God. Ezra shows up. He begins preaching and, and teaching in his ministry. He is calling out the sins of the people. And Ezra 9.4 says that all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me, Ezra, while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. The hand of God moves. The word of God goes forth in power to bring renewal to the people of God. Even back in chapter 5, when they had this 15-year pause on the rebuilding project, what re-engaged the people in the work was the prophetic ministries of Haggai and Zechariah. And we'll get to them later in the story. But it's their preaching, the word of God, that stirs the people back up to get involved. Authentic, abiding, root-level, heart-level Renewal comes from God's word. In Matthew, Jesus said his word would never pass away. He said obeying it was like building your house on rock instead of sand. In Acts, the church grows as those scattered by persecution preach the word. In Romans 10, faith comes from hearing the word of Christ. In Hebrews 4.12, the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. In Genesis, the world is created by the word of God. In Hebrews, it's held together by the word of God. And in Revelation, it's made new by the word of God. And most importantly, in John, the apostle says that Jesus Christ is the word of God, made flesh living among us. The renewal comes from God's word. But see, we can know these things and it make absolutely no difference in our lives whatsoever. Satan knows God's word. He quoted it to Jesus in the wilderness temptation. 
Knowing it doesn't mean that it renews you. Doesn't mean that it changes your community, your family, your church, your city. The real question is not so much do you know God's word, though you have to. The real question is, what is the posture of your heart towards it? What's the the posture of your heart towards God's word? Do you trust that it can bring renewal to your life? That it can bring renewal to your marriage? That it can renew your joy, your family? That it can renew your school, your workplace, your nation, that it can be the source of renewal for a city or a church or a culture? Do you, do you believe, do you trust that it can do that? Do you see it as relevant to your life? Like, is it actually helpful day to day? Do you see it as a lamp under your feet and a light to your path? It's sweeter than honey and more precious than gold, even much fine gold. Like, or is it just like one more collection of pithy quotes and ancient wisdom, inspiring stories, that if you can get a little bit of here and a little nugget over here and a little, then you can be a better captain of your own ship and master of your own destiny. What do you do it's a posture of the heart thing, right? What do you do when you come across biblical teaching you don't like? And if you don't, you're not reading it. I do. What's the posture of your heart? Are you dismissive of those in those moments? Are you defensive? Like when the word of God is in conflict with your desires, your habits, your preferences, does it initiate change in you? Now, it might be painful, might take a while, but, but does it initiate, or do you just kind of skip over those parts and really focus in on the parts of the Bible that already affirm things you already believe? So I really, I really already like this, so I'll memorize that and quote that, and I'll put that on Instagram. This kind of steps on my toes, and so we just like not, you know, we just, it's a posture of the heart issue. Has it shaped your worldview? Like just in the way that you think about the world. How often does God's word show up in the way that you answer friends' questions? Or in your parenting? Like when you're, when you're correcting your children, does God's word make its way into those conversations? Or is it just because I said so? Like hard conversations at work. How, how does, like what's the posture of your heart towards God's word. Do you take the posture of Ezra, who set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach its statutes and rules in Israel? Can you imagine what kind of renewal might we experience if just the people who call King's Cross home committed themselves to just that one thing. I I am going to study God's word and I'm going to do it. And where he gives me an opportunity, I'm going to teach it. 
to my children, grandchildren, friends, family, neighbors, coworkers. I'm going to allow it to work its way into the way that I'm interacting with the world. What kind of renewal might we see? Like, can I tell you that there are some, like, we're still growing as a church, right? There, there are some things that I wish we could go back and do differently. But this is not one of them. I, I pray that we don't ever lose our love for and our commitment to the Word of God as a faith family. Because if and when we find ourselves, either as individuals or as a church, in a valley or in a place of plateau, or we find ourselves discouraged, or maybe even, God forbid, in a place of just pure outright sin, what will be the source of renewal for us in those seasons is God's word. It always is. God's hand as he initiates movement and God's word as he comes to renew his people. And one more. Renewal comes from repentance. Repentance. Chapter 9, Ezra is appalled. Verse 1 said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. So it's a spiritual issue. Right? It's not an ethnic issue. It's not a racial issue. It's a spiritual issue. The people of the land with their abominations. This is the core, repeated, generational sin of Israel going all the way back to the days of King Solomon. Israel refused to be set apart. They married pagans. They let their children marry pagans. They began to assimilate pagan gods into their lives, into their worship, into their families. And Ezra is spiritually distraught. He fasts. He prostrates himself before the Lord. He laments. In prayers of confession, Ezra 9, 6, Oh my God, I am ashamed. And I blush to lift my face to you. My God, our iniquities have risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. And it's not just a generic prayer. Ezra confesses the sins of the people specifically. He quotes specific commandments from Deuteronomy 7 in verses 10 and 12 of Ezra 9. And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants the prophets, saying, and then he quotes Deuteronomy, the land you are entering to take possession of it, it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the lands and their abominations, false gods, that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore, do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land and live in it, leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. Ezra prays this openly, publicly, so that the people of Israel can hear him, so that they can hear the word of God and be convicted by it. And chapter 10, verse 1 says, While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, a very great assembly of men, women, and children gathered to him out of Israel, for the people wept bitterly. 
The people's conviction over their sin is voiced in verses 2 to 4. There's a proclamation made in verses 6 to 8 that calls all Israel to repentance. And then in verses 10 to 12, it says, Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, You have broken faith and married foreign women, and so increased the guilt of Israel. Now, make confession to the Lord, the God of your fathers, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples of the land and from foreign wives. And then all the assembly answer with a loud voice, It is so. We must do as you have said. And it is not a really killer good sermon that created an emotional response on the part of the people. They do it. In verses 16 to 44, they follow through and they name publicly in writing all those who had compromised their faithfulness to the Lord by marrying pagans and joining in their worship, including priests and Levites. Can you imagine for a moment if I preached a sermon that was pretty convicting and I said, now, in two weeks on Sunday night, if you'll come back, we'll have a list of everybody who's guilty of this and we'll talk about it. That's what the end of Ezra is. And oh, by the way, Chip and Josh are on the list. That's repentance. That's action. Renewal comes from repentance, conviction, confession, and actual behavioral change. Christians, is repentance a regular part of your life? Are you convicted by the Word of God? Does that conviction drive you to confession? And are you humble enough for that confession to be specific? So in your prayer time, not merely forgive me, but forgive me for this. Forgive me for I have sinned against you by doing this. Father, Romans 1 lists gossip as a sign of a debased mind, as evil as an example of unrighteousness. And yesterday at lunch, I gossiped. Would you forgive me of that? Renew my heart and help my mind not to want to even be involved in those conversations moving forward. That's repentance. But let me name it. This this should just be normative for God's people. He knows anyway You understand you're not catching him off guard, right? God's not like, whoa, 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 whoa. Chip, you did what? This is not, he knows repentance is just your heart and your mind getting in alignment with his. It's just you agreeing with God that what you did was wrong. That's what repentance is, and it's the pathway to renewal. And if you're not a Christian yet, it's your first step towards the greatest possible renewal that you will ever experience. The promise of the gospel is that all those who repent of their sin and trust in Christ will be made new. 2 Corinthians 5.17, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. Two birthdays as a student was wise enough to be able to share. So God's hand, if you're not a Christian yet, has already moved. 
He has already done everything necessary for your salvation. He's already sent his son to live the life you should have lived, to die the death you deserve to die in your place for your sins so that by his grace, through your repentance and faith, you can be restored into a right relationship with God and your heart can be renewed and you can receive a renewed life and a renewed eternal life. God's word contains everything necessary for you to know how to do that. Everything you need to know about life and doctrine is contained in his word. Everything you need to know about how to have a relationship with God and with his people has already been revealed to us in his word. And repentance is your way of beginning that journey. And then what you will find once you're on that journey is that repentance is the outward symbol that you're still on it. Because all of the Christian life is renewal by repentance until one day the Lord makes us fully sanctified, completely like Christ, when he either returns or calls us home. Because we won't have to do this forever. This is a little short amount of time. And one day we'll be made new. This is how God brings renewal. He acts, he speaks, and we respond. Let's respond in prayer. Father, your word indeed is relevant to us. It can renew our hearts the same way it renewed the hearts of Ezra and those Israelites who went with him to Jerusalem can renew churches and cities the same way it renewed the city of Jerusalem and its worship in the temple. Your word is transformative. We thank you for it. Where there are areas of unconfessed, unrepented of sin in our life, would you convict us of that right now? That before we leave here today, we might spend time in prayers of repentance and confession, knowing that we leave renewed, trusting not in our goodness, but in yours, given and displayed and made sure for us in the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. My name's Chip. I'm the lead pastor here at King's Cross Church. Thank you so much for listening to our podcast. We hope that you're growing in the gospel as we work our way through the story. Take a moment to subscribe and you'll get each week's episode automatically. May the grace and peace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all.